certainly over the, the past couple of years, there's been this narrative that uh, the majority of them are, are kind of economic migrants with no legitimate refugee claims, for example, something that was echoed by the, the former Home Secretary, Priti Patel. So that just is not reflected in acceptance rates for asylum. Um, the overwhelming majority of uh, people who cross the channel and people who enter uh, the UK's asylum system do end up having legitimate asylum claims. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, is Britain's immigration system broken? A renewed debate about immigration has been sparked by the arrival of thousands of asylum seekers on boats in the channel in recent weeks, along with the controversy surrounding the reappointment of Suella Berman as Home Secretary and the very tragic case of a petrol bombing of a migrant processing centre in Dover. Meanwhile, the British business sector is calling out for relaxation of migration to fill skill shortages, while others complain that the Brexit dream of law migration as they view it has not been fulfilled. To discuss this situation, I'm very excited to be joined by Daniel Pryor, who's the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute and a former colleague of mine. Daniel's written extensively and about the benefits of taking a more liberal approach to migration. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Hello, Matthew. Nice to be on a podcast with you again. <laughs> yes, indeed. We, we, we used to host a podcast together in the, in, in the good old days. Uh, so f- for those missing the, uh, the Matthew-Daniel banter, we're, we're back to it. Um, All three of them. <laughs> all three. I actually once we once had a fan who came up to me and, and uh, specifically said uh, that they enjoy the podcast. But and and for for the great the great chat. But uh, kind of getting on to where I'm just having a bit of a, a conversation with you about the issue of small boats to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, there there has been this case uh, I think theorized potentially around the end of the farming season in France. That you're now seeing um, hundreds or thousands of people coming over by boat in recent weeks across the Channel. They've got the um, Home Secretary saying that impoundments is an invasion. Um, what, what do you make of the situation? Something we should be concerned about? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the people talking about how we've lost control of our borders are right. I think the question to be asking is who broke the system, who broke our migration system, uh, and what will actually work when it comes to fixing it. The kind of demand for control and sovereignty over our borders, I think, is a completely fair one. Um, I think where missteps are often being made is how people characterize people that are actually crossing the channel in small boats. Um, I think that certainly over the the past couple of years, there's been this narrative that uh, the majority of them are are kind of economic migrants with no legitimate refugee claims, for example, something that was echoed by the, the former Home Secretary Pretty Patel, um, saying so I think it was something like 70%, she argued, were actually economic migrants rather than people with legitimate claims to asylum. Uh, and of course, that just is not reflected in acceptance rates for asylum. Um, the overwhelming majority of uh, people who cross the channel and people who enter uh, the UK's asylum system do end up having legitimate asylum claims. Uh, there are, I think, some important qualifications to that. Uh, the first is that Uh, Specifically this year, we've seen a a more recent influx of people from Albania, where I think people are are rightly more sceptical of how Albania, thought of by by many people as a a safe country, can be a legitimate legitimate sending location for people claiming asylum. 
Uh, certainly in, in recent times, we see we haven't got the, the figures for the past six months, but in recent times, around half of Albanian asylum claims have been accepted. Um, so unless you, you kind of think that the, the caseworkers are systematically being far too lax, um, as some people do, then that to me is some evidence that, that at least some of them do have very legitimate claims to asylum, uh, usually through things like uh, labor trafficking, for example, uh, or fleeing from uh, gang violence in, in Albania. Um, I think that that kind of that counterclaim, the idea that, well, the Home Office is being too soft, um, people often point to how the UK's acceptance rates for asylum are significantly higher than the EU average. Uh, I think without further backing up that claim, you could very well say the opposite. You could say, well, maybe actually the UK is not generous enough, or maybe uh, EU countries are significantly underestimating how many people have legitimate asylum claims. Um, one thing that, that kind of makes me skeptical of the idea that we're being too soft um, and, and accepting claims where people have no right is that coming to the UK and making that quite dangerous channel crossing after already being in Europe, to me, at least sends a signal that, that you, you have a very good reason to come to the UK specifically to claim asylum, um, as many people do. Obviously, in the past, the kind of channel crossings have been dominated by uh, people from Afghanistan, from uh, Iraq, from Eritrea, all countries with um, a history of conflict and also a, a history of close ties to the UK, whether that's in terms of working with our military, in terms of uh, shared language, culture, colonial history, etc. Um, and, and that, I think, kind of answers the question of, well, you know, France is a safe country, why should people uh, then come to the UK? And the answer is, well, if we're going to have any sort of uh, sharing of global responsibilities when it comes to refugee inflows, then it makes sense that the UK should play a role when people have a specific connection to here. Uh, if France, for example, turns around and said, well, you know, Germany is a safe country, why don't they stay in Germany? And Germany then turns around and says, well, uh, you know, Austria is a safe country and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you get to a situation where the UK, which has signed up to um, the global compacts on uh, accepting refugees, it, you know, they're, they're, there's it breaks down. The, the entire system of, of refugee protection breaks down. Um, and you know, right now, something like 85% of refugees are hosted in countries neighboring the ones that they have fled from, which are mainly developing countries. So I think we have a role to play in this. Uh, the problem is how we're managing, or rather the Home Office is not managing, uh, to process claims in an efficient uh, and timely manner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's an interesting point here, which is, uh, according to government statistics, something like 85% of processed claims are legitimate asylum seekers here, but something like 96% are still awaiting a decision. And there's multiple yeah. years of backlog. So we're leaving people in this precarious situation, which is very expensive for the government in terms of the housing costs, um, welfare, associated welfare costs, uh, as as well as um, the, the concerns about the migration system. The truth is, we, we don't really know what percentage of the current migrants are um, have got legitimate claim to refugee status. I think you'd probably make a decent argument that um, probably a majority, if not a, a large majority, do, perhaps with the exception of the, the Albanian question. I think, generally speaking, there's still a lot of um, refugees who, who come to the UK from Afghanistan over, over the channel. But what I'm kind of just seeing is the extent to which maybe 
the existing refugee conventions and the way we handle this is in some respects broken. It doesn't, it, it seems like a weird incentive to me to say, technically you're meant to, as you've said, and, and most asylum seekers do, um, seek refuge in the, in the first available safe country. But at the same time, if you show up on UK's um, borders, even if uh, there's a question about arriving illegally without a visa, you, you that's technically legal, but then you get a stay from that illegality if you're ref claiming refugee status, and then it becomes legal if you come by refugee status. That basically, in my view, does in, in intrinsically create a market and a dangerous market when it comes to people smugglers, where there's always going to be an incentive for the people smugglers to try to sell the product. We're going to get you on a boat. We're going to get you across the channel. We don't care if that's dangerous. We, we don't care about um, the, the UK's right to you know national self-determination and with its borders. Um, and, and therefore, we need a kind of better scheme in some respects. I mean, we, we talk a lot about Rwanda and offshore processing. I, I think that's a bit of a bung idea, mostly because it's very expensive and has kind of human rights law implications. But in my mind, a better solution would potentially be to try to process and require asylum seekers to be processed in that first country. If mm. not, the, if the UK actually wants to stop boats, the only practical way I can imagine it happening would be sending people back to France for processing and saying that if you arrive by boat, you won't get asylum in the UK. Um, and instead, you'll just be processed in France to kind of take away that product. Do we need a kind of a more a radical, different approach where we think about discouraging the people smuggling trade by reorganizing it whilst at the same time, I suppose, taking a generous number of asylum seekers, kind of dealing with that moral issue um, and, and taking people from those uh, processed asylum seekers, but not accepting people who come um, through regular means. Yeah, I, I think there's certainly some truth in that. And, and your comments there, I think, speak to the fact that there aren't really many available safe legal routes, as it's often called, um, to, to seek asylum without crossing the channel. Um, it may be that you know, you're part of the Afghan resettlement scheme um, that applies to a very small portion of people seeking asylum in the UK, of course. Um, but in general, if you want to seek asylum in the UK, you kind of are sitting in a UN refugee camp and hoping that your number comes up. We just don't really have um, many kind of set up schemes in order to, to do that in a timely fashion. So certainly working closer with the French, uh, which has been a goal, to be fair, for uh, for several years, certainly post-Brexit, and as this issue has become more salient, I think it's absolutely right. Uh, and if there is a way, and I, I hope there is, of being able to set up some sort of system where, say, you go to a UK consulate in, in France um, and you kind of get pre-approval to seek an asylum claim here, um, the Joint Council for Welfare of, um, Welfare of Immigrants has talked about this idea of a humanitarian visa where if you have reasonable grounds that your, your claim might be accepted in the UK, you can get that and then you can come over here in a way that doesn't involve um, small boats and all of the, the kind of dangers and the, the visibility that, that comes with that. Um, so I think that's part of it. The, the kind of cynic in me, though, says that that's going to work quite well when it comes to people that are able to do that, to access that um, and that have a reasonable chance of having their claim accepted. The problem is that for the rest of the people who, who, who don't potentially have a legitimate claim but still want to cross the channel, I think that they'll still do that, right? So you're, you're making a dent in, in kind of people who cross the channel and very much think they, are, they have a legitimate claim to asylum. Um, you're not necessarily making as much of a dent in the people who cross, perhaps you don't have a legitimate claim or for whatever reason, um, would not be able to access those, those kind of facilities if they were set up in France. So 
I, I think just in a general point that I always make about this is, and it's one that's repeated, I think by most sides of the, the debate, that there is no silver bullet quick fix solution to this. It's going to take a lot of time. Um, it's going to take lots of different policy approaches and trying lots of different ideas to really work. Um, I think the the IPPR had a report out quite recently looking at some of the reasons why there's been an increase in small boat crossings as a specific method. Uh, partially, that was through crackdowns on other previous methods of, um, of entering the UK, so you know, going in the back of lorries, etc. Um, and th there's a certain amount of playing whack-a-mole here where you increase securitization around one particular method of entering the UK, uh, and then that just shifts uh, a whole bunch of people to try a different method, in this case, small boats crossings. And I'm sure the, the kind of ideas of, well, we need to, we need to have um, better French policing on it, certain areas of the French coast. Well, to a certain extent, at least, you're just going to shift people crossing to a different point that's arguably more dangerous if you do that. Um, so I think it, that, that kind of is worth bearing in mind. The other thing I'd say on this yeah, is that there's an interesting yeah. point that's often missed, which is that there isn't necessarily a, a substantial increase in Assam numbers compared to the early 2000s, just the people coming by boat instead of coming in, uh, getting into lorries because they've improved the security at Dover so much. Right, exactly. And I think that we have to kind of look at the, the huge asylum backlog that we have, over 100,000 people, um, and, and actually recognize that that plays quite an important role uh, in, in encouraging uh, more people to to make the small boat crossings because if you look at countries that have more effective and more efficient asylum systems and, and quicker processing times they actually tend to be ones that that have less uh, asylum claims and now you could say there's chicken and egg actually they, they're more efficient because they have less asylum claims but i think the flip side might be true as well that if you know coming to the uk you're going to be kind of let's say you don't have a legitimate claim uh you're stuck in the system for ages. You've got two years where you're being processed. You can abscond, you can disappear into um, the, the gray or black labor markets. Then that is actually quite a good, um, a quite, a, quite a strong incentive for, for people to choose the UK as a destination. So sorting out the backlog is actually part of, of reducing small boat crossings um, in general. And that's something that, you know, it's been talked about for, for several years now, but there doesn't seem to have been much in the way of political action. Um, those that I talk to in, in the kind of uh, asylum refugee sector tend to recommend that, well, if we if we hired more asylum caseworkers, uh, if we just had more, more uh, men and women working on this uh, and we paid them better, then that would make a, a big dent in the problem. I think there's there's some truth to that. Um, I haven't. Yeah, isn't the problem though inherently if you just start processing more quicker that more will come? I mean, this this seems to mm. be an intrinsic problem. No, no matter that seems unavoidable, even if you're relatively sympathetic about asylum seekers and refugees and think the UK should be more generous. That just factually speaking, there are millions and millions of asylum seekers as well as millions of more um, economic migrants who who will want to come to the UK. Uh, desperately, and that more or less you, you're going to be stuck in, and have to make a, an arbitrary decision about who you do and don't allow in, and you conceptually just prefer not to allow people to come by boat. Um, which I, I think brings me to another point, which here, uh, which always kind of concerns me and intrigues me, is the extent to which um, this ends up poisoning debates more broadly about migration. I want to have a chat in a second about mm. uh, the, the case for and against immigration, generally speaking. But it, there's this sense and um, very much seemed to play out in the Australian debate when it came to migration in the 2000s, when there were these similar kind of 
arrivals. In fact, in some respects, a lot more dangerous um, from Indonesia or mm. even as far as Sri Lanka to Australia. Um, there was a big controversy around Tampa. Uh, John Howard, who is the kind of conservative uh, liberal prime minister of Australia, said we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Uh, he managed to do what was called the Pacific Solution, a, a kind of mixture set of policies of offshore processing and um, preventing arrivals by boats. But at the same time, um, so you saw uh, once that issue was resolved, the kind of small boats crisis resolved, Australia became very generous to, to migrants um, under the points-based immigration system. Australia had uh, probably twice per capita um, migration over that period compared to the UK, quite substantial numbers of immigrants. It didn't seem to be quite very controversial until Labor came into power in 2007. And then there was this concern again about boat arrivals. And, and then there was a broader concern about migration. Do you think that this, this debate about um, the small boats ends up poisoning the debate about migration? You see Nigel Farage and some of the kind of right-wing parties use this as a way to create a bit of hoo-ha about something generally they don't like, which is migration. Yeah, I think that that's a, a really good point, and and broadly speaking, yeah, I agree. I think that it it does it does poison that debate. I guess where you and I may differ, um, though I'm not sure, is is on where priorities should be when it comes to uh, migration policy here. Now, I think it's pretty uncontroversially true uh, that high skilled migrants tend and high skilled migrants don't tend to be refugees um, on average. Um, they tend to be better in terms of economic impact on natives than low-skilled migrants do. Uh, though I would also hasten to add, I think that low-skilled migration also has, in many ways, net positives on the um, on the economy of the UK. But let's take for granted that the high-skilled migrants have a better preference. Now, you can kind of effectively, you know, if you want to kind of throw refugees under the bus, uh, I, I'm not accusing you of that, but like that is the kind of implication of, of this line of thinking. If you want to throw refugees under the bus in order to boost more domestic support for high skilled migration, then I think that would be better for the national economy in many cases, uh, although we face a lot of labor shortages now in low skilled sectors. So, you know, the extent of that impact is, is debatable. Um, but you are at the same time um, deprioritizing the people who are in most in need of moving, of, of migrating, right? Um, refugees in general, by, by their very nature, if, they, if their claim is accepted, um, that, you know, they're fleeing war, conflict, poverty, et cetera. Um, and the gains that they get from not being in a situation of war, poverty, conflict, oppression uh, is much higher than the gains that uh, a high skilled migrant might get in the same situation. So you, you know, you get, you've got to kind of acknowledge that trade-off when you're you're kind of talking about the politics of this. Um, and I think that certainly from my own perspective, the reason or the main reason that I'm particularly pro-migration from, from an economic perspective is the impacts on migrants themselves. As I said, I do think that there is a, a strong case to be made for the positive economic impacts, certainly of migration on, on natives, whether high or low skilled. Um, but to me, the kind of uh, the discussion we, we've had before on moral universalism and, and caring more about uh, treating someone on the other side of the world is morally equivalent to to someone here, I think, um, which is uh, I accept a very niche view and certainly politically um, difficult, at least to defend. <laughs> well, we can get on, get on to that now. Um, but just to finish up the conversation, I think there is probably a way you can uh, stop the small boats, have 
a kind of legal route for asylum seekers. And in fact, uncontroversially, the UK is taking a lot of people from Ukraine, from Hong Kong, um, yeah. even even South Afghanistan, um, as well as have a generous a general immigration system. But uh, moving on to that kind of broader question. So I think we've got this interesting situation and I want to get your general thoughts on what, what's happened to immigration post-Brexit. So we had the sense, perhaps the, the two visions of Brexit, one that was let's clamp down immigrants, particularly from Eastern Europe, uh, and have immigration in the tens of thousands, as uh, David Cameron talked about, as well Reverman has said she'd like to see, including preventing immigration even of students and having fewer skilled workers. On the other hand, though, you obviously have the Liberal uh, perspective on Brexit um, saying that, well, in fact, it's about taking back control of our borders, not necessarily limiting numbers. And of course, you have a third view, which just says um, immigration is great, generally speaking, and, and I don't really care about uh, controlling numbers. I'm wondering where you think we've ended up in that debate. Yeah, I, I think our, our mutual acquaintance, uh, Jonathan Portes, who took a very negative view towards um, towards Brexit in terms of economic impacts, was, he's written a, a few, fair few times after Brexit about how surprised he was that the migration system ended up being as, as kind of liberal as it was. Um, and I think that, you know, he's he's right to a certain extent. Whilst we've, we have seen a reduction in EU migration as a result of ending free movement, we've seen, um, we're not quite sure if it's commensurate yet, it's quite difficult to, to kind of weigh up net inflows and stuff because of um, the COVID pandemic, but we've seen at least a significant increase in, in non-EU migration uh, to compensate for that, as it were. Um, and that to me, actually, I, I shared his scepticism to, to a large extent in the, the immediate aftermath of Brexit, thinking that the, the Brexit vote did reflect um, a, a political and popular will to, to reduce overall numbers, and that was the most important goal. But it seems like the system we've ended up with is closer to this um, caring about sovereignty, uh, ending passport discrimination, as it was um, termed during the referendum debate, than it has towards this, this kind of pulling up the drawbridge narrative. And, and I'm very glad that that's been the case. Um, I think that you know, obviously there's a lot of improvements we could make to our current migration system, but actually uh, we've ended up with one that was significantly better um, from my perspective than I thought we would have. Yeah, it, it seems that the points-based immigration system hasn't necessarily restricted numbers as much as um, some of its proponents might have originally thought, or, or perhaps some of its proponents intended this to be the outcome here. I'm, I'm wondering if you could say something about this idea, and, and Boris Johnson uh, was quite prominent on this, that we're going to reduce immigration, increase productivity, uh, immigrants are a drag on general productivity mm. because they just uh, reduce capital investment because you can just depend on cheap labor. You've you've now got a, a kind of response to businesses saying, well, we've got labor shortages. We need more labor, uh, particularly as you've said in low skill fields, but also even in high skill areas. What 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 do you make of those kind of arguments about the economic impact of immigration? Yeah, so on the productivity aspect specifically, there's a very large body of evidence that immigration, both high and low skilled, but especially high skilled, improves productivity overall on aggregate um, without looking at kind of specific sectors or, or specific jobs. And some of the reasons for that, they're debated, but it comes down to migrants being complements to the skills of natives, for example. It comes down to innovation, entrepreneurship. Um, migrants tend to self-select for greater entrepreneurship. If you're someone who's willing to move to a whole different country and start a new life, you're more likely to have the sort of traits that make you um, an entrepreneur and an innovator. Um, but I think if you get into some of the specific sectors, the debate becomes a, a bit more 
complicated. If you take agriculture, for example, an example that's often brought up uh, in the context of British farmers not uh, automating to the extent uh, or investing in, in new technology and capital investment to the same extent as some other countries. Uh, some commentators would blame that on a reliance on low-skilled migration. Uh, and whilst we don't have any, any kind of comprehensive look at that from the case of the UK, there have been other examples where countries, uh, the US, for example, in the 60s and 70s, uh, have suddenly stopped low-skilled um, migration programs for the agricultural sector. Uh, and whilst we did see in, in the case of the US a response of farms investing more in, in technology and machinery, that didn't translate into an increase in productivity. Uh, in fact, farms lost out quite significantly in terms of their, their profits and overall um, competitiveness. And I guess the, the kind of the most obvious explanation for that is that in many cases, such investment just isn't economically profitable. And actually, we aren't yet at the stage where it makes economic sense to, say, uh, invent a, an automatic tomato picker and spend the extra training and, and man hours on that and the upfront capital cost and so on. Um, that tomato picker might not be able to pick broccoli, for example, so there's less substitutability than, um, than labor. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of reasons why it might be the case that Yes, uh, cracking down on, on low-skilled migration, say the agricultural sector, might boost automation, but automation and investment in capital in and of itself are not always good things, right? Um, I mean, we make the same argument when it comes to the minimum wage. It might be that if we, if we double the minimum wage, McDonald's suddenly fires a whole ton of um, employees and invests in the, the automated ordering stores. That doesn't mean to say that it is most economically sensible and productive to do that. It just means that it's a, a business response to having an input they would otherwise have chosen in a free market situation being removed by um, by government restriction. Yeah, I, I think that the concern about uh, productivity is, is, is probably to some extent um, kind of logically justifiable, but it, it doesn't appreciate the, the kind of cost of benefits here. I think there's also this broader question, and this is what the, the understanding was of, of the, the key conflict between Sola Breverman and, and Liz Truss uh, in, in the dying days of, of that very short-lived government was Truss basically saying, I'm going to pull the lever on more immigration in order to get mm. economic growth going. I think that's probably the stronger case for the UK more broadly, which is uh, in the context of an aging population, um, greater demands on public services, it, you're inevitably putting more burdens on working age cohorts. And if you, if you aren't um, having you know, pronatalist policies, I suppose, uh, which you can pursue to some extent, like building more housing, for example, um, you're, you're going to need immigration to fill the gap in terms of uh, the, your economic capacity and, and to pay those taxes that are going to fund those services for the nice things that you want and uh, to make us better off. I think the, perhaps the stronger arguments against migration, though, are more about those, those latter factors, though, which is the, the kind of stresses that immigration, immigration puts on infrastructure, on public services, mm. on housing. We, we can't have, you know, the, the argument goes, we can't have large levels of immigration if we have a planning system that won't allow more construction. Those, those two things just don't add up. We're inevitably going to have a, a contributing factor, uh, even if it isn't the main contributing factor to the, the housing crisis. It is certainly, I think, justifiably you know me being here me taking up an apartment here in london means one less apartment for potentially someone else to live in etc etc um it, it does seem like there is a, a bit of a question open question there in the context of britain's very nimbiest politics 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a, a new version of the Milton Friedman argument that you, you can't have open borders while you have a welfare state. You can't have high levels of migration while you have NIMBYs uh, dominating <laughs> housing policy. Uh, I think that there's, when it comes to housing specifically, I think there's there's certainly some truth to that. that uh, it stands to reason that if you have more people, then you have high demand for housing and high demand without a supply that's able to reach it. It's going to uh, boost up house prices. But it's also worth looking at the relative roles that population versus rising incomes play in housing demand. And actually, if we look at, say, London, for example, the population of Greater London has not changed significantly from 1950 to, to 2000. And yet house prices went up by, what, something like 500% in real terms. Um, so I, uh, population plays a role, but I think a much larger role is played by, as people's incomes rise, they demand more space. Um, they demand, you know, bigger gardens, more rooms, et cetera. Uh, and that's a point that's been made quite effectively by, um, by my friend Paul Cheshire at the LSE. Uh, the, the other point, though, that I make is, yes, it's a, it's a problem with housing. We need, to, we need to solve housing policy. But when it comes to other kind of infrastructure questions that are often brought up just as much as pressure on house prices, I think the pace is a lot less uh, clear cut. So if you look at the NHS, for example, yes, higher demand on healthcare as a result of more migrants. Migrants also tend to disproportionately work in the NHS. Uh, and the net result of that seems to be that NHS waiting times aren't really also, affected. Also, migrants by... disproportionately pay taxes to fund the NHS. Uh, so I think the NHS right. is much better off as a result of immigrants. Right, exactly. There's that demographics point that you, you made uh, earlier, that yeah, migrants tend to be more likely to be working age. Um, and as the population pyramid becomes more skewed as, as people age and native birth rates decline, you know, you're going to need someone to pay for, for all these public services. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's there's some truth to the, the kind of housing concern. Well, another interesting thing on this, in many cases in the UK and in other countries, areas that experience quite high migration sometimes have house prices fall in the local area. Um, that's not a good thing because it's a reflection of people not wanting to live near migrants more than anything else. But if, if you know, never reason for a price change, but if, you're, um, if your house prices are falling because of that, you know, there's obviously other effects going on as well as the, the increased demand. Um, and again, migrants also disproportionately employed in the construction sector as well. If we ever do manage to let that construction sector work, then I'm sure they'd be, be very happy to help um, addressing our housing yeah. shortage. You'd need a, a mass migration of construction workers to, to get UK building, no doubt. And the last concern, which has is, which is come up uh, on and off and, and also seems to be a, a focus of um, people who want to constrict migration is about kind of the question of culture, uh, mm. the, the sense in which uh, if you allow immigrants um, from certain places that don't necessarily share the UK's values. Um, you, you could obviously say that has a kind of racist undertone, but I think potentially you could have a, a genuine non-racist view that if you have a lot of immigrants with liberal perspectives, that's going to have yeah. an impact on your political system. Uh, I think Douglas Murray points out that uh, London is more homophobic than the rest of the country, and he theorizes that's because London has a lot of immigrants from places that have uh, illiberal attitudes on homosexuality. Uh, and, and that has an impact on political debate. We've also obviously seen some of the conflicts between Hindus and, and Muslims um, playing out recently in the UK. Is 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 this, I mean, you obviously kind of can retort by saying, oh, what we need to do is better inclusion and integration. And I think that's that's obviously clearly the case. But to, to some extent, those policies are 
uh, going to fail. And and um, to some extent, they are very, very difficult to achieve. I'm wondering what you make of mm. the kind of cultural arguments. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree that it is a problem um, and that it's certainly true that certain migrants and from certain groups or, or nationalities and whatnot have deeply like immoral and bad illiberal attitudes towards a whole variety of different issues. And that's a, a, an issue that, a, that we need to tackle. Um, I think that we also have to look at the flip side of, in relative terms, how successful the UK has been as, uh, as a country, as a kind of melting pot and that we haven't seen more in terms of um, backlash that we might have already done. But the, the kind of ways to, to tackle that, the first is having a labour market that's, that's flexible. Um, and the UK historically has been quite good at that compared to somewhere like France, for example, where um, struggles with, with integration in terms of values are quite significant um, and migrants tend to take longer in terms of how many generations uh, since the, the initial migration before they assimilate towards broadly uh, you know, native values. Um, and the reason for that is that one of the best ways to integrate is to have a job and to meet people from that, that native that local culture. Uh, so that's one aspect to it. I think that the, the other thing to mention here is that, again, this, this kind of comes from the more universalist standpoint, so may not be as relevant for those who don't share it. But people with illiberal attitudes, they, they exist, whether they exist in the UK or whether they exist in a different country. And I think that they're far more likely to adopt liberal attitudes if they're in the UK than if they remain in the, the kind of country that they initially came from. So in terms of uh, you know, making people more liberal, making the world a, a more liberal, tolerant place. Um, you know, migration has an important role to to play in that. Um, but yeah, it's certainly true that it's it's a significant problem. Um, and I think that there is no easy, quick fix solution. Uh, but I also don't think we're anywhere near the point where we're kind of killing the goose that lays the golden egg in terms of this country's institutions, um, the, the kind of positive aspects of, of British national culture that, um, that, we, that we have. Uh, and that a lot of the time, some of the kind of doomsday predictions, I mean, we heard a few years ago, that like uh, half of Europe would be Muslim by 2050, completely based on in fiction rather than fact um, and very unlikely to, to happen um, by, by current trends, certainly. I think that it's often overegged just where we are in terms of that journey towards the point where suddenly our institutions break down because so many migrants don't share the sort of values that we care about. I think that we're, we're so far away from that point that we, we don't need to worry about suddenly migrants outvoting us in terms of the liberal values and things like that. And also, I mean, hey, the, the UK, the, the great UK British public does a very good job of um, of promoting some pretty poor policies themselves without the help of uh, migrants. Uh, we've just talked about the housing crisis, for example. Yeah, I mean, you could probably make an optimistic and positive case here, which is that there's a reason why so many migrants, um, even after they make it to France, are seeking to come by boat to the UK. And for those, uh, there's always a bit of contradiction. The average person who says what we need is to be more um, welcoming of asylum seekers and refugees at the same time tends to be quite negative about the UK and, 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 and Britain. And it reminds me of very much of the kind of Ronald Reagan shining um, city upon the hill where he talks about um, quite inspiringly about that the city should be open uh, and and should although it should have a drawbridge uh, the, the gate should be open we should we should allow and accept more people and to, to join that great um, shining city upon a hill and we should be honored that uh, people do from all over the world including myself uh, want to make the UK home so Daniel thank you very much 
for joining the IA podcast. Uh, if you're enjoying enjoying the IA podcast, please do subscribe on your podcast provider as well as on YouTube, where you can uh, watch all sorts of different content from the IA. Uh, and if you'd like to support the IA, you can become an IA patron.